0: I did.
1: you doing? Yeah. I am drinking a um, Upslope, uh, which is a great uh, local brewery here in Colorado, and I specifically bought this. I I I, I don't I, have, I don't drink as much beer as I used to uh, for various uh, reasons, but this one is special because it's the Spruce Tip IPA, and I highly recommend. Uh, at this time of year, if you can find a Spruce Tip beer, it is amazing. Alaska. Alaska Brewing Company makes makes tip, and apparently uh, Upslope did. so when I saw this in the in the fridge at the store I was like uh, uh, that's it I'm going for it
2: uh, that sounds very nice it well is. I'm sure you want I mean I, that sounds delightful but I'm sure you won't need it for any reason because once we finish this conversation as we know it will be very uplifting <laughs> we're all going to come out of this conversation feeling great and good so it's not like you'll need it for any of that kind of a reason
0: <laughs> um yeah I uh when I did drink, I was a, I was an IPA guy. Yeah. Um, and I think they're like often like unfairly maligned. Just yeah, cause totally. people who are enthusiastic about it, like yeah. may, might rub, rub some people the wrong way, but man, they're good. They're so they fucking good. Um, David, we, we start all these conversations aside from clearly authentic banter uh, the same <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, so we've asked everyone and now it's it's your turn. Uh, David Sirota, are you a gamer?
1: Yeah. Uh, I used to be i I guess based on me many years ago being a gamer, I can't call my current gaming consumption uh I don't rise to a level of a gamer, although I play some games with my kids.
0: oh, what do you guys plan
1: uh, my kids are really into minecraft uh we do a lot of uh I guess it's the, I mean it's ridiculous but we do Mario Kart that's a big family uh that's, that's fun a, that's a family yeah experience. Um uh, Does that get competitive? It does.
2: It yeah. does. It, it gets yeah.
1: extremely competitive actually. Um and uh and and I don't I don't sort of go easy on the kids. Meaning it's not like oh I'll let you win. It's like no, I must win all the time.
0: <laughs> who's your who's your go-to in Mario Kart? Uh I like Wario. Oh. Okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah it it's, uh, it teaches them the wrong lesson if you're letting them win. I mean that's not what life is like. That's not no. what society's about. <laughs> no, I no, I mean I'm gonna... not like
1: I'm not like spiking the football, <laughs> but but you know, I'm not just going to like uh, like sort of, you know, let them let him just beat me. Now, to be clear, my son has gotten good enough where now I'm like hey hey dude, can can you let me win? Like, yeah. cuz he's so good that that now he's he, he's gotten part of the ability to crush me. Yeah. He,
0: I liked uh, is this Mario Kart and Switch? Hmm. Mm-hmm. I liked the uh, like the car and tire uh, customization. Mechanism oh yeah, totally. in That game totally. You can really, you can. Yeah, really you know what the trick of it is. Speed.
1: Honestly, is is the speed rating is is a is kind of a a trick. It's it's that's not the one to prioritize. You should pr- prioritize acceleration uh, because mm-hmm. because where you get crushed is when you get into a crash. It, the the ones that have a lot of speed but not a lot of acceleration. You end up losing ground because you can't get to top speed fast enough after you get into
2: a crash. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so many... it sounds like you are, this is real gamer hours. It sounds like you're really serious about <laughs> it. I, I mean, yeah.
1: I, you know, I, I take, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I am a gamer. I don't know. Like you, <laughs> you are. <laughs> you are undersold and over delivered. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> Once cr- a gamer, great. always a gamer. So yeah, I think you yeah. still have it in you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do miss, um, I was big into Halo uh and before yes. that i was actually uh, really big into doom i mean sort of original i guess first person gaming and actually before that i was really into um original original castle wolfenstein so it's yes. a long history i mean i'm talking about original like mm-hmm. apple 2 castle wolfenstein
2: yeah yeah oh, this is oh, like wow. oh wow okay yeah I'm serious <laughs> yeah like you're, you're putting us to shame now with the gaming yeah stuff. yeah
1: i mean like the fact that there was like you know sort of dot matrix print Dot matrix printer and like uh, running around uh, a Nazi castle in sort of uh, giant pixel Apple uh, black and white mode. I mean, I was I was I feel like I was like an original Castle Wolfenstein fan.
2: Yeah, I remember I played the original Wolfenstein three D. Like that was probably my one of my mm-hmm. first. Yeah, I'm like a thousand years to. older than you guys. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're definitely a gamer. That's confirmed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. All right, good. We can continue. Uh, that's usually <laughs> where some conversations stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but David, we're, we're so glad you joined us. Uh, you you run the Daily Poster. Um, you were on the Bernie campaign. You have been a champion for progressive causes uh, for decades. Uh, so we appreciate all your work and and your voice in important policy debates. So we're really, really honored you're here with us today. So thank you Thank you. For you. Thanks us, for David. having me. Of course, of course. Uh, as as we were talking about before, and as people have seen, uh, what is this international climate conference, COP twenty twenty six? What does that stand for? Uh, I haven't even like looked up the acronym, but it's a it's in Copenhagen, I guess. Maybe that's why. Uh, no, it's in Glasgow. No,
2: it's in Glasgow.
0: Glasgow. Yeah. Well, what is COP then?
2: Uh, I should look this up. I forget. I'm going to edit that part out. Don't worry. Thank you. you. you it's not important because none 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 of this is really going to matter. That was my yeah. takeaway. Yeah, that's been my takeaway from watching this as well. I think that's when you come to these like climate conferences, it's just getting to the point. Like when you look at, um, you know, a graph charting our emissions, and you can look along this graph and just see each each conference and each talk and all these different times that all these global countries have got together to to talk about climate change to set emissions targets and you just see along this graph emissions just like steadily rising and rising and rising and just not really ever being affected by any of these conferences um so it's starting to feel a little bit like this is just completely um kind of this course sort of self congratulatory um uh, party for these these wealthy and powerful people to come and get together to talk about how you know, enlightened they are and how they're, they're planning to do all these good things, which never actually materialize in reality. So it's just becoming more of a spectacle, a depressing spectacle than anything else.
1: I mean, I think, I think this conference, look, I think it's one of those things where it, it, it's important, it has to happen and it has to be taken seriously, but it also feels exactly the way uh, you're talking about it. And where I really got that feeling was, I think it was over this past weekend where There was like a prime speaking slot for Barack Obama. And Barack Obama, less than three years ago, was in Texas in a tuxedo at an event, (laughs) I think it was at Rice University. And he said he was bragging, not non-ironically bragging, wanting credit for the record boom in fossil fuel production in the United States when he was president. He was saying to them, that was me, people. Like, you should, you should, and I think he said, you should say thank you. So my point is, is like, so you can do that, and then you still get a prime speaking role
0: at the International <laughs> Climate Conference? Yeah. Like, there's something really, really messed up about that. And then uh, he had the audacity to kind of like, tut, tut, uh, other countries for not taking it seriously or not acting uh rapid enough and um it all just seems like a cynical like legacy saving maneuver i mean he's a prominent global political figure so for the organizers that's like a great get but uh, in reality it's it's just you know pomp and circumstance it, it means it means very little um i <laughs> i don't know how people could see that and maybe they do maybe they just they don't give a shit, but I don't know how people can see that and think this is anything other than just, just like a cynical ploy.
1: Yeah, and I, look, I get the idea that when people come towards your cause, you should welcome them with open arms. But I also think the, 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 uh, the converse of that is also that if people come towards your cause without acknowledging how they created the problem... <laughs> then it really does feel like a reputation-washing exercise rather than something uh, real. And, and that, to me, actually speaks to a larger problem in our culture, which is the memory-holding of everything. Uh, that, that I was just saying this to a, a friend recently, like the, the collective memory of things like the Iraq War, the financial crisis. I mean, it's incredible. These these giant events that shaped human history, that shaped a whole generation—they're—they're they're gone. They've been memory hold. And and a friend of mine said, "Yeah, yeah, dude. You know what else is gone? Like five hundred thousand people died of COVID, and and even that's basically gone. And and I I am kind of obsessed with this idea that the consequence-free world of the elites where they can do whatever they want and know they can reputation wash themselves at, at any time mix that with a lack of collective public memory and it really is a goldfish culture where we the collective consciousness is forgetting its entire world every 15 minutes and the problem with that is how can you ever learn lessons from the past even the recent past like 15 minutes in the past if you're just constantly stumbling around forgetting inconvenient truths in your past every, every five seconds.
2: The thing that really stuck out to me about this Obama speech, it was really stunning watching this. Um, and, cause it wasn't just, it wasn't just directed towards other countries, right? It was this very like, paternalistic kind of uh, lecture directed also towards young people. And about the the cynical young people and this idea of, of Obama saying like you know I recognize people are cynical about politics, uh, young people are cynical about politics, but we just have to keep voting, keep voting like your life depends on it. And also this this admission, this tacit admission as well, where he's like I recognize that young people have seen the adults of their generation uh, not take this problem seriously enough, uh, <laughs> pretend it doesn't exist, and in some cases make things worse. And I'm just like, who are you talking about, sir, yeah. Mr. President? <laughs> like you. you. (laughs) you were the president for eight years If If only it's it's amazing it's really amazing
1: (laughs) if only there there had been somebody in the most powerful office in the land who understood the the thing that former president Barack Obama was saying at this speech I mean it's just so it's just so (laughs) cynical it's just it's like because because sometimes you can try to well maybe he hasn't he hasn't really thought it through or he hasn't you know it's just it sort of comes off that way like No, that guy is not a dumb guy, which makes the cynicism so nauseating. How deliberate and carefully sculpted that kind of cynicism is, right? Like he definitely knows that he went to Texas to say, please give me credit for the oil and gas boom. And then less than three years later, was at the uh, climate event being like, Uh, you know don't get too cynical about you know your your leaders who haven't done what needs to be done it's just it's just it's just so
2: it's i I, I, it's beyond words how how bad it is i know it's really Mm -hmm. stunning um and i mean another thing it leads into some other stuff that we're going to talk about today though as well with the whole build back better framework because a lot of what we're hearing right now in the media is about all the things that that Joe Biden can't do, because he only has he only has 50 senators. Yes, they control the house. Yes, they control the Senate. But you know, you got Joe Manchin, you got Kristen Sinema, you have these people that are not getting on board. If only people voted a little bit more, you know, you voted in the last election, you delivered us this amazing result, but you just need to vote a little bit more. We need a few other people in there that can help us out. While ignoring the reality that under Obama, they had this massive supermajority 59 senators. And all I remember hearing from that time is how 59 that was still not enough. That was evidently not enough to still do any of the any of the really radical things that a lot of their supporters that worked their asses off to elect this guy really wanted. Um, it wasn't enough to, you know, rescue homeowners. It wasn't enough to do like radical climate action. It was it was only enough to do this kind of watered down conservative version of a health care plan. And they're still kind of out there making this argument that if only we just had a you just need to vote a little bit more. And then we're going to be able to do the stuff that we want to do. We're going to be able to fix the problems. And like you're saying, David, recent, very recent history shows us that that's not actually really the case at all, you know?
1: I mean, yes, the answer (laughs) to every problem the Democrats will tell you is to vote for Democrats in the next election, That, that the Democrats in their telling are never in the position to actually have the power to do anything, which is very strange because during elections, they are telling us that this is the most important election of our lifetime for the most powerful set of offices uh, in the world. So the, the the story changes almost instantly from the day before the election to the day after the election. Day before, everybody must vote uh, for the Democrats. Uh, because these elections are the most important elections in our lifetime for the most important offices in the world. And then after the election, it is these offices actually have no power to really do anything at all. Uh, and that the only way we're gonna have more, have more power to do anything is to uh, elect even more Democrats in the next election, even though after the current election, the Democrats actually control uh, the lawmaking apparatus of the government. It, it's, it's absurd. Anybody who spends six seconds thinking about it knows it's absurd, uh, but a lot of people don't spend six seconds thinking about it. In fact, there's a whole corporate media apparatus that's there to make us try to not think about that for more than six seconds. But obviously, especially back in the Obama era, first two years of the Obama presidency, when you have uh, 57, 58, 59, 60 Senate votes, You're talking about a, and and you have the House, you're talking about a congressional majority that should be able to deliver on some very basic, explicit promises. And if you control the White House, you should be able to deliver on some things that the executive branch uh, singularly and unilaterally controls. And that's not what happened. That the the, uh, Congress, uh, did, you know, it passed a bailout and the Obama administration, uh, you know, Obama helped forge it at the end of the Bush administration and then oversaw it in the Obama administration uh, made the bailout and he had executive authority to make it something different but made the bailout a top down bailout to a handful of financial institutions the Obama administration did not prosecute a single wall street banker uh, who engineered the financial crisis uh, we could go through the list but the point is the point is is that there were explicit promises made he had a huge mandate. He had a congressional majority. He wildly underdelivered with a motive. The motive being to—he pre- underdelivered because he was protecting uh, his Wall Street donors, who had given him the most amount of campaign money in the history of presidential campaigns. Uh, and he underdelivered. People were frustrated. Millions of people were thrown out of their homes. And guess what? The cynical right-wing uh, Tea Party. Were the beneficiaries of that they were able they got a political bailout they were able to portray themselves as the the anti-establishment populists and ultimately the conditions were created for donald trump uh to win and you don't have to believe me on that it was steve bannon who said the legacy of the financial crisis is donald j trump and you could see it in the election results that uh that 200 plus counties flipped from obama To trump and many of those counties were where the housing bubble burst the hardest and the point in remembering all this is that we're now in a similar situation where the democrats have a new president uh, with a congressional majority and all of a sudden the promises that were made about what was going to be delivered keep getting paired back and history should tell that party the democratic party if you do this you're going to help create Another Tea Party. You're going to help create the conditions for another Donald Trump. And apparently, that lesson The same Donald Trump. The same, potentially the same (laughs) Donald Trump, exactly. And apparently, that lesson is it's like nowhere to be found. It's not part of the discourse after the Virginia and New Jersey elections uh, in 2021, this year in the off year. You know, the discourse has been uh, the Democrats have to actually uh, uh, renege on more of their promises to materially improve people's lives. Yeah. and this becomes the conventional wisdom even though it's only 12 years ago that that was the conventional wisdom a manufactured conventional wisdom which delivered the republicans the congressional majority and donald trump the
0: presidency and that's something like gr- growing up in the rust belt like i lived in ohio uh, growing up in at, outside of youngstown mm-hmm. and the recession hit us extremely hard, and this is already a city that had been struggling because of post, in, like a, living in a post-industrial America. You know, mills closing in the '70s, a, a shrinking city going from 160,000 when you know steel was was vibrant there to like 50,000. You have all this decaying infrastructure, which led to blight, decreased property values, and I saw a ton of friends and family lose their homes. And if you're talking about that cynicism point, like that was that moment for me where it's like, this is so, and then, oh, and you touch on this, and I we'll, we'll plug it at the end too, and we'll put the link in the show notes. David, your show Meltdown uh, on on Audible is a fantastic history lesson in this, and, and an overview of how that through line from that moment, from the financial collapse and the lack of, and the ins- insufficient response from Democrats leading right to Trump, it was a total clear giveaway to to Democrats. And specifically, I remember this being hammered on Fox, as my parents are, are conservative, the bailouts point was such an efficient driver of outrage because it's so like transparently corrupt. These are people who just fucked over the global economy for personal gain, and then they're giving themselves bailouts. And then the only feeble attempt in Congress to rein that in was completely gutted because of corporate lobbying. It was so like like just eye opening. Uh, I was young 20s at the time and just like oh this is this system is rigged you know you kind of grow up even if you're like mildly interested in politics and you're kind of in your first stage of political and moral development you you i you know it's not surprising for people to be idealists, but that's where things just really went south for me because it was so brazenly corrupt well and and contrast it with the ppp
1: which was <laughs> in a sense a small business bailout now the ppp was not perfect this is the, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program um, that gave uh, small businesses during the pandemic uh, an infusion of cash. Uh, it was under Donald Trump. Not a perfect program. There was some companies got it that shouldn't have got it. Uh, the, you know, there was some, there's always gonna be some abuse in a program that big, but it was a bottom up bailout. We are going to quickly send checks to people who apply and everybody can apply. And the point is, is that The PPP, if you look at polls, it polled pretty well. It was like, look, the government's actually floating us through a very difficult crisis. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people felt immediate help, immediate material improvement in their lives. By contrast, we were in a crisis 12 years ago. People are getting thrown out of their homes. People are losing their jobs. People's uh, retirement benefits, their 401ks are plummeting. And what they see on their TV is a bailout that is top-down, that is directing almost all of the resources to a handful of financial institutions that created the crisis in the first place.
2: So created it through rampant corruption and criminality too, just to be clear absolutely. As well. Like it's not like this was an accident that happened. This was no. deliberate criminality that led to this.
1: Exactly, so the public is watching that the people whose criminal, uh, unethical, immoral behavior created this crisis for everyone else. They're the first at the trough getting rescued. So what's amazing to me is that, I guess not amazing, but and and not surprising, but it's still nonetheless amazing, is that we have to remember that the TARP program, that's the bailout, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, gave almost a blank check to a president to decide how to use that money. This is a key point that's been forgotten, that, that the way that bill was written gave George Bush and then Barack Obama the power to basically do whatever they wanted with that money. And Bush made his decision, we're gonna start bailing out the banks, and Obama continued that decision. And the crazy thing that comes out in the podcast series, Meltdown at Audible, is that the right at the moment that Obama had the opportunity, could have, taken some of that money that was going to Wall Street and directed it into direct immediate instant simple help to homeowners. The Democrats who'd been berated by Republicans with the sort of dishonest argument, oh you're spending too much money. The Democrats instead of saying, you know what, we're just going to spend a lot of money to help people, the Democrats said, you know what, we're going to we're going to accept that argument <laughs> that we're spending too much money, and we're going to rescind 300 billion dollars of that fund that hasn't been spent yet we're not going to allow our president to spend it and we're going to run out and say look at how fiscally responsible we are look at how amazing look at us we see the republicans are saying we don't want we we're spending too much money look at us we're 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 rescinding our own party's president's ability to spend money
2: like but famously then the conservatives were not able to make that argument anymore and they immediately stopped so that was the really important decision that was part of that they they cut that out right away it's like, how could you be,
1: how could you think that's good politics? And then, of course, the icing on the cake was they did that. And then, right before the midterm elections, what did they turn to? Hey, it's time for a Social Security cutting commission. It's time for us to talk about cutting people's quote unquote entitlements. And then they get shellacked in the midterms and they're like, I, I don't understand how that happened. How could that possibly happen? It's, you know, there's, and lately I've been like, you know, they're not, at some level, they're not stupid. They're not, you know, they, they, they're professional politicians are a lot of things. They're typically not just dumb. They have some skills, some aptitude. So I've started to ask the question as we've seen a kind of repeat of this with Biden. And the Democrats now, you know, we're going to pare back our agenda in the middle of a crisis. And yeah, you know, you know, the, the you listen to the media. The media is saying after the Virginia and New Jersey elections, oh, you know, Democrats have to pare back their their agenda. Oh, yeah, right. The best way to appeal to voters in the midterm elections is to make a public display of not giving them paid family leave. I mean, this flies <laughs> as like conventional wisdom. And at a certain level, you're like, they can't be that stupid. It's not possible to for professional politicians, even... Even ones that are unimpressive to be that dumb. So you start to ask the question: Is this actually what they want? Is the fix actually in? Is this entire thing a game between the Washington Generals and the Harlem Globetrotters? That is it all a a a, a pro wrestling match where the outcome is already predetermined? And lately, I've you know I'm a I'm an optimist caught in a pessimist brain. But lately, the mm. like the sort of this whole thing is deliberately rigged has seeped more into my thinking
2: um also too going back to Obama's uh you know his the inner, the initial few months of the first year of the Obama administration and Jordan how you were saying how that how radicalizing that was um to see like these these economically destroyed uh degraded areas that were being completely ignored while the the you know the wealthiest most powerful people are getting bailed out I, I think it's especially radicalizing for for many people as well just In comparison to what Obama's campaign was his amazing, inspiring campaign that was really built on these ideas of like optimism and hope. I mean, it's literally hope. I mean, that was one of his main campaign slogans. And I think it's that contrast um, that was especially you know, radicalizing for a lot of people, you campaign on this idea that things can be different, we can really change the way things happen in the United States, um, and then to immediately get in and be like, turns out we actually can't change any of that stuff because uh, you haven't you haven't quite voted enough. Um, like I was saying, it's like I'm I'm Canadian. As many people remind me when I when I talk about this <laughs> stuff, but you know, for for me, for many people in Canada, for millions of people around the world, we were look you know who who have to live in the world that the United States kind of creates geopolitically. We all looked at that Obama campaign. It was incredible it was it was a beautiful moment um and where it felt really like pregnant with all kinds of possibility to really change the way things were done and it, i think i think it had that effect like around the world for people that were paying attention to that um that level of cynicism when he did finally come in and just none of those things materialized at all
1: and i would say about that that yes you're right it goes back to that old cliche with great power comes great responsibility if you raise people's expectations, if you run a great campaign on hope and change, which he certainly did, and then you deliver more of the same, that's a different and more dangerous situation than if you had run a lackluster campaign, eked your way into office, and still and then delivered more of the same. If you, are, are, if you have legitimately convinced people that you're going to deliver change, and then you deliver more of the same, the consequences for society can be far worse because then it becomes a generationally disillusioning moment. Then it becomes, you have, you have said to the public, don't believe anything. You have said to the public, you should actually be a nihilist. You, you have said to the public, uh, fool me once, uh, shame on you. Uh, fool, me one, fool me twice, shame on me. That, that you, you have potentially disillusioned people to such a level that they will never believe that change is possible. And we know that when people stop believing that change is possible, or at least uh, progressive, constructive change is possible, it can create the environment for a kind of right-wing authoritarianism uh, and nihilistic change to happen. And we know that, but Alex Gibney, the uh, the executive producer, co-executive producer of, of Meltdown with me, and we wrote a, an op-ed for Rolling Stone and we looked at there was a series of studies that came out about what happened in Weimar Germany in the 1930s. And I wanna be clear, whenever I talk about these studies, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is Hitler and I'm not saying that his followers are, you know, exactly, specifically, precisely Nazis, but there is a cautionary lesson in what came out in these studies about what happened in Weimar Germany, which was on a county by county basis, you can see that the areas in Germany, Weimar, Germany, right before the Nazis took over, that the areas that were hit hardest by the Weimar government's austerity agenda, not delivering for working, those were, you might think that those areas in not getting, in seeing the German form of social security cut and seeing budget cuts, you might think that they would be more open to voting for socialists. Hey, we're not getting what we want, we're gonna vote for people who finally give us what we want. Instead, what you see is that the biggest spike in support for the Nazi party in Weimar Germany, the decisive uh, spike.
2: Well, and that's also exactly why they leaned into the the socialist language, right? And naming yes. the party and everything, because they wanted to appeal to that exact yes. uh, person, right? Yes, and
1: that essentially austerity is what cre- created the opening for the Nazis to take over. And that is such a, ha- and, and it's a haunting lesson, but the other part about what was going on back then was that Back then, Franklin Roosevelt understood this in a very explicit way. You can go back and look at his speeches and he is basically saying, the New Deal, we have to pass a New Deal to invest directly in helping the working class, not just because it's morally right, because people are struggling, not just because it's good economic policy, but because if we do not do this, then fascists who were already on the rise in America at the time, fascists are going to be able to take over. In other words, he understood the connection between delivering economically for the working class and preventing the rise of authoritarianism and fascism in America. Uh, and he understood that if you don't deliver, eco- if a democratic government, small d democratic government, does not deliver for the, work- for the working class, then people will start questioning democracy Itself. I mean, I'll paraphrase the, one of his famous quotes. He said he was talking about other countries He said, you know, other countries decided to get rid of democracy because democracy kept producing governments that weren't uh, delivering for the people. And ultimately, people decided uh, to sacrifice democracy in the name of getting something to eat. And so he fundamentally understood that. And now, he, the, despite the fact that he's the most popular and revered Democratic president, probably in American history that party that came out of the New Deal uh, has just completely forgotten or or doesn't want anything to do with that cautionary lesson
0: yeah one of those and you you mentioned how these areas flipped mm-hmm. from Obama to Trump and that's again I, to bring back my hometown Youngstown and the county itself which is a per, mostly a Democratic stronghold and has been for years flipped to Trump in 2020 for, and it went red for the first time since Nixon uh, and Amazing. it was close in 2016 and uh, the neighboring county Trumbull did go to Trump, but both have been, you know, it, the main Democratic power centers in Ohio were Columbus, Cleveland, and uh, to an extent, Youngstown, Akron, Canton, because Youngstown, Akron, Canton are big industrial areas. And w- partially why it was close in 2016 was because of uh, TPP. Mm-hmm. And this is something you know. The NAFTA is a household word in, in that area. People understand how it decimated uh, that area and other parts of It's a Four-letter four word. <laughs> yeah, And and I can't it believe just, they didn't
2: vote for Hillary. What a huge shock! Yeah, wow. Someone right. have, but it, someone have yeah, she was for that, championing
0: maybe. it, and Bernie was opposing it. And I think <laughs> there's obvious. I mean, I I know I'm uh, among like minds here. at That his message resonated there. Bernie's message resonated there and throughout the country because people need help. And the Democratic Party, like you say, has abandoned its principles, has abandoned its its storied uh, heritage on, on these issues, uh, abandoned its New Deal era aesthetics and substance. And it is a corporate, it's a corporate party. And you see responses to that voting alignment in 2016 2020 being dismissed as oh well these are just racists. these are white nationalists these are white supremacists they they don't care about immigrants it's like they do but like they can't afford to live and you have someone saying like more of the same more of the obama era more of the corporate democratic party and doing everything they can to keep someone like bernie out who was speaking directly to their material needs now trump had the hollow rhetoric Trying to to talk about those types of things, he, I think, he initially supported TPP and then flipped uh, and opposed it once he realized it was a political advantage, and he never obviously lived up to any of that. But he was the only person in that race speaking to it, and and they did everything they can to to keep Bernie out and keep progressives out. Um, it's it ultimately due to you know corporate corporate alliances.
1: Yeah, and I also think that I mean the 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 racism issue is portrayed as some binary issue when anybody who's honest about it, understands that it operates on a continuum. And by Mm -hmm. that, I mean, essentially what we know from our history, really human history, is that when resources become scarce, uh, racism tends to uh, boil up. That there's not just some people are racist and other people are not racist. It just doesn't work in a binary way. So I would argue that when you starve the population of basic material needs and help while at the same time every time they turn on their TV, they're seeing the richest get richer. Then you're creating the conditions for people's worst human instincts to come out. You're creating the conditions for uh, in-group solidarity. Uh, We know that when, you know, when, when when populations are forced to scratch and claw for crumbs that in-group, by that I mean demographic groups, religious groups, uh, racial groups, ethnic groups, that in-group solidarity gets stronger. I, I want to help my, you know, my, quote-unquote, my group. And hostility towards the other becomes more pronounced. So I, the, the entire discussion of Donald Trump was elected because of racism kind of elides the fact that we know that racism becomes more of a factor Tends to become more of a factor uh, in electoral politics and society in general when lots and lots of people are struggling to survive. So, so it's not that Donald—it's not that racism didn't help Donald Trump. Of course, it helped Donald Trump, and he played into it, and he, you know, he tried to tried to gin it up as much as he could. But also part of the reason why racism was salient or more salient at the moment was because millions and millions of people have been thrown out of their homes. Uh, lots and lots of people were were hurting and were being completely ignored. Not only are they being ignored, they were being insulted. They were kept being told by the Democrats, hey, look at us, we helped you, we already rescued everybody, the economy's doing great. And millions of people are saying, what are you talking about? I just got crushed over the last decade. I, I, I just lost my job, I got thrown out of my home, I can't afford my health care. What are you talking about? And so, I can't like the whole debate over Donald Trump and did he get elected because of racism or not? I just think it's been so dishonest because it doesn't want to contextualize how racism ebbs and flows, how it it's on more of a continuum than on a binary scale. And it's undeniable if you can, if, if, and this wasn't talked about very much, but that's an undeniable point. If you're willing to just admit, listen, somehow. 200 plus counties flipped from Obama to Trump. So if you're trying to only blame racism on the electoral results in 2016, how do you contend with that statistic? And you can't contend with that statistic because you got to admit then that something additionally was going on. But to admit that something additionally was going on, the Democratic Party and its and corporate media and its pundits in corporate media have to then do self-reflection, have to admit that they did something wrong. But they don't want to do that. It's a party that simply will blame anything and everything other than taking a moment to reflect on its own corruption.
2: Yeah. And I mean, to, in keeping with the sort of Weimar Republic analogy, um, those kinds of deteriorating economic conditions. it. it allows demagogues uh like donald trump to come in and and scapegoat you know a minority group or ethnic group x degeneracy or socialism and use that to blame blame these groups for these very real economic problems that are not being caused by them and i think i sort of get how you know if, if you feel like the people that are that are ruining your life are these very powerful corporate interests or bankers well finding a way to finding a solution for that is like really difficult. If you're just like an average person, how are you ever going to, you know, claw back some, some dignity from these people? But if you feel like these, the people that are causing these issues are lower on the totem pole than you are, and you can kind of punch down, it's like an easier, it's an easier way to uh, blame someone for, for these economic conditions. And, and and demagogues like Donald Trump are able to take those moments um, and create these scapegoats. And, and that's, that's the result.
1: Yes. and, And the democratic party So Donald Trump is and his ilk are willing to scapegoat minorities, ethnic, religious, racial minorities, uh, the out group, however you want to phrase it. But they are willing to be xenophobic, racist and scapegoat uh, the other, if you will. I'm putting that in quotes. They're willing to scapegoat the other. Whereas the Democrats are not really willing to lay blame where it deserves to lie with super rich wall street bankers and uh, large corporate forces in the same way that donald trump is willing to uh, blame uh, quote unquote the other and the reason why democrats won't do that democratic elected officials the democratic party machine is because they get a lot of their money from the people who are creating the people in the corporations who are creating the problems i mean this is why the democratic party so often sounds so incoherent I've said this before i'll say it again which is that the democratic party sounds incoherent so much of the time because they're simultaneously trying to tell voters convince voters that they will solve major societal problems while also trying to protect the corporate donors who were creating those problems and that is an impossible thing to do that these conflicts we face are binary one example among many You cannot convince voters or actually deliver for voters, better prescription drug prices, more fair prescription drug prices, and also preserve the high prices for prescription drugs that enrich your pharmaceutical industry donors. You have to decide we're either going to lower the prices for people, or we're going to protect our pharmaceutical industry donors. You can't do both at the same time you can try to come up with ways to 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 sort of try to make this work together where you you do both things at the same time but ultimately at the end of the day you can't so the democratic party The problem is it's typically chosen. You know what, if we're forced to choose between honoring our campaign promises and protecting our corporate donors, we're gonna side with our corporate donors because at least they'll give us the money to try to run ads to, to win the next election. And the problem is that after a while, the public catches up. The public's like, look, you promised me this. You didn't give me this. You sided with your pharma donors, and I'm still hurting. And now you got the Republicans running in here and blaming uh, racial, ethnic, religious minorities. And at least they're providing an answer. It's a bullshit answer. It's it's a it's a disgusting answer. It's not really an actual answer. But at least they're providing a story about the world and a promise of uh, to channel anger in a way that makes makes a voter momentarily feel like at least uh, some something is happening and that's how the politics becomes it keeps ratcheting to the right Democrats don't deliver, Republicans run in with a racist xenophobic anti-immigrant whatever kind of message. The Republicans win, then they don't deliver, then the Democrats run an election and say listen, we're going to deliver for the for for working people. They get elected, then they don't do it. The cycle starts over. And that's how the cycle keeps moving to the right.
0: Uh I wanted we wanted to get your thoughts on the the ongoing uh, legislative battle and jockeying in Congress over the uh reportedly linked but apparently not uh, infrastructure and build back better plans. And I mean just can least... we stop
1: for a second for, for one second the
0: the the, the, yeah. the term
1: i i i I can't say the phrase build back better <laughs> without sucks thinking about veep like it's literally <laughs> like something that kent from veep would come up with as a laugh line to the audience for how ridiculous it is and yet it's actually real i mean this is it's genuinely beyond parody just the phrase of it just feels so unbelievable it's like shamelessly inauthentic it's almost so shamelessly inauthentic it's actually authentic like it's come full circle like you're so ridiculous that you're authentically ridiculous
2: it's, it became like internationally thing too. It's it's not even a Biden thing. Like Justin Trudeau is talking about build back better. I saw it Seems that. like some kind of international consultant group really lucked out on this one. They like really hit that like one out of the park.
1: somewhere in like the McKinsey basement they, they yeah. came up with it there. Like an, some international, yes, totally. <laughs> I I, I happened to be watching like fl- flipping by C span and I saw Justin Trudeau saying build back better. I was like there was it was like a little icon in the bottom of the screen. I was I I was like. I thought that was Biden's thing. Like, I guess that's now the, the sort of. It, it's like a. It's like a. Like a.
2: It's the global neoliberal consensus. They're it, all getting on board with this one.
1: Yeah, it's like a. It, yes, it's 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 like global neoliberalism with like a little registered
0: trademark symbol underneath. it. <laughs> we <laughs> love it. It's so uninspiring. <laughs> um, uh, the Build Back yeah.
2: Better framework now is oh, what they're. Yes, that's what yes, they're of it course, now. of course. Can you imagine? By the way, can they you all imagine got the memo.
1: having a conversation with somebody in real life? where they said that kind of casually you're like you know the build back better framework you're like did you just say that like that you're not that's not language that's normal that's it's completely not normal language like it really does speak to the idea that the democratic party has no idea how to even talk to regular people in the world because
0: that's not even language like linguistically that anybody would ever use yeah it's it i mean in in, in recent Political messaging, uh, things that get people inspired. I Of those phrases that come to mind, you know, <laughs> n- uh, not me, us, I'm willing to fight for somebody I yes, don't know. Yes, we can. Yeah, yeah, these are all great, you yes. know, great things that you can understand, The common person can understand. <laughs> yes. And if our problem is getting, you know, l- people who aren't motivated or a, I think an elitist term, low information voters right. uh, to turn out. What what the fuck is Build Back Better going to do to get them inspired? I I, I don't understand how that is is still happening. But uh, on a legislative front, uh, we saw progressives, you know, try to fight it because it was supposed to be linked. They gave away their leverage by passing uh, the, quote, bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill with some sort of hope that enough people, including members of their own party, are going to get on board with this build back better framework on a, a spending bill next week hopefully um david what what is what is your overall takeaway from the past week or so of of this of this fight should people uh have faith that moderates are going to come through and hold up their end of the deal
1: <laughs> i don't like to make predictions but so i'll get Smart. to my projection on what's going to happen in a second but i i think that look there's a couple things we have to understand one i th- I think most of the Progressive Caucus members are not operating in bad faith and that's an important distinction. Bad faith is I'm deliberately saying a thing then taking money from a corporate interest and doing the opposite of the thing that I'm saying. We know that happens a lot but I think for the most part most members of the House Progressive Caucus are not operating in bad faith. I think however they are operating from a position of fear, weakness, and wimpiness. And but they are also having to think honestly uh, about how to preserve priorities in an asymmetrical situation. And the asymmetry of the situation is this: that if the if you can stipulate that most of these progressive members of Congress are not operating in bad faith. It means that they wanna preserve as many uh, good policies in this bill as possible. As opposed to like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and Josh Gottheimer and these corporate Democrats who are operating in actual bad faith. So they, the, the progressives are operating in good faith, trying to figure out how do we get ha- three quarters of a loaf, half a loaf, a quarter of a loaf, something. How do we preserve our priorities? And the asymmetry is, is that the other side, Manchin, Cinema, Gottheimer and the like, the corporate Democrats, they're willing, they're happy to have nothing pass because that's what their corporate donors actually want at the end of the day. So the asymmetry is that the corporate Democrats are happy to just do whatever they can to take the whole bill down because they don't want any of it. They're, they're, so, so that's a fundamental asymmetry. And where I think the progressives, many of them, most of them have gone wrong is to be too weak, too afraid, to actually have a standoff, a real standoff, to fight for what they want. That although the corporate Democrats are willing to kill the whole bill, the thing you have to do as a progressive to preserve the best parts of that bill is to motivate the most powerful office in the world, is to motivate the entire executive branch to mobilize in support of your bill. That the we know from LBJ is the Kind of cliche of it all but we know that the white house has many tools at its disposal to pressure arm twist cajole uh, recalcitrant members of the president's own party to support what the president wants and as far as i can tell the president hasn't done much of anything to do that <laughs> to put pressure on the corporate democrats uh, and there's plenty of ways that he can make life very uncomfortable Politically for uh, Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, the uh, House corporate Democrats, and he has not felt a need to do that because the House progressives have basically said to him, whatever you want, we'll give you whatever you if you need our votes, we'll give them to you. We don't care what gets cut out of this. And so it's not that they're operating in bad faith. They're just they don't have the intestinal fortitude. It doesn't seem like to actually have that standoff and say to the, the president, you're not getting our votes unless X, Y, and Z is in this bill. We wrote a piece of the Daily Poster about how you could tell the fix was in because the progressives were saying, we will not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill unless it's linked to a reconciliation bill and unless the reconciliation bill is, quote, robust. And the problem with the word like robust is that's a fungible word. What does robust mean? They didn't say we will not vote for this unless it includes this specific line, this specific funding program, this specific uh, initiative. They didn't say that because what they're trying to do is avoid a standoff. And so the problem, so I think, uh, getting to my projection, I think what, where this is all going is what we said back in August at the Daily Poster, which is that they're, they're, the ultimate end of this deal is either the corporate Democrats will kill the reconciliation bill. Certainly now that they, ha- they already passed the bill that they really wanted the infrastructure bill that was supposed to stay linked to the uh, reconciliation bill. The whole theory of keeping it linked to the reconciliation bill was that the corporate Democrats would have to vote for both in order to get the thing they really want, the lobbyist-written infrastructure bill. So I think what's going to end up happening is, is that now that the bipartisan infrastructure bill is passed, now that the corporate Democrats have really gotten what they wanted, now they can get more intense about trying to hack apart the reconciliation bill, and the progressives... Having promised everybody, hey, we're gonna get a reconciliation bill, they just want a piece of paper called a reconciliation bill, no matter what's in it, to just wave around and say, hey, look, we 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 did what we did what we said we were gonna do, and expect nobody to ask, hey, listen, does that piece of paper have anything in it? So I think that's a long way of saying that. I think the end of this is gonna be there will be something probably passed, but the difference between what is ultimately passed and what started out as the demands to be passed. I mean, we've gone from $6 trillion to $4 trillion, to $3.5 trillion, to $1.9 trillion. I keep making a joke on social media. We're gonna to get to two bucks and a, and a used Casio, like the line from planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> like, where does it stop? Like, they're gonna be waving around a piece of paper that's like, hey, every American gets two bucks and a Casio and try to pretend that's a victory. And the danger for the entire party is that they will run, around, run out there and say, Look at this huge victory we had, a transformational victory. And come the election time, if you've gutted the actual details of the bill, you can put out as many press releases, as much spin as you want. But if you've gutted the actual details of the bill, if you haven't actually delivered real help to people, lots of voters are going to be saying, now you're just insulting me because I don't feel any of the change you're talking about. You're telling me I should feel appreciative of it. I don't feel any help at all. And that's just going to make the electorate more angry.
2: And especially when they start getting lectured by people like Obama, for, because they haven't, they've become cynical and they're not voting enough.
1: Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's like, I already
2: voted. We are, you know,
1: and then they'll run out. Yeah. The, the worst part's going to be they'll run out and they'll say, you have to. OK, fine. Maybe we screwed up the economic policy, but you got to elect us to defend democracy. And the problem with that argument at that point would be lots of voters going to say, listen, I just use democracy to elect you guys. And what you deliver for me? I don't yeah. care about your democracy arguments. I just care about it goes back to the FDR thing. I just care about being able to get something to eat.
2: And, and also in terms of what you're talking about, the way the lack of action on the part of of the Joe Biden administration to actually put pressure on these Congress people and senators that are literally just like arbitrarily holding up the entire agenda that he campaigned on. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, that was basically the whole theory behind Bernie Sanders' run for the president, right? It's like- (laughs) I know, I mean, that's Because everyone knew, we all knew that Bernie wasn't just gonna go in and just pass Medicare for all and pass all these, the Green New Deal and pass all these things. We knew that there was gonna be corporate Democrats that were gonna try and stop that. The whole point was, if you have a president that's gonna actually- care about trying to pass these things and try and put pressure on these people to do the right thing you don't know for sure if it would have worked but at least would have been a different approach right where you see the president really trying to do something and it would have made more clear like this process really making
1: the not loyal democrats if you will the 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 corporate democrats the the people who are busting up the deal really making them uncomfortable and biden has done as far as i can tell now granted who knows what's going on behind closed doors but for everything that we know that he just has not put really much pressure at all and you know people might be listening to this and saying well what what, what could he really do to uh, let's uh, you know joe manchin maybe a special case maybe not but what could he really do to kirsten cinema well that's a state that he won he won he won arizona so he could go to arizona and put and campaign for the thing that he wants, that she's apparently, uh, at least initially, not willing to give. They could, the Democrats, could put a whole boatload of stuff into the bill for specifically West Virginia and, uh, and Arizona, and they could make a whole spectacle out of how much is in this bill for those states. They could go to those states and campaign and say, look at all this that's coming to you if this bill passes. And then they could put the bill on the floor and dare those two senators to vote against it none of that has happened none of it and i think that's the tell that's why i go back to this seeping into my mind if that hasn't happened if they're not even willing to do that are they really for what they say, therefore, or is the fix already in? Is this all just performative? I mean, there's that old quote from Paul Wellstone. I'll butcher it here. I'll paraphrase it, but it's basically, you know, you can tell people you stand you stand for certain things, but if you're not willing to fight for those things, do you really stand for them? And I think that's actually the the biggest question of all. We keep being told Biden wants this bill. The Democratic leaders want this bill. It's just uh, uh, cinema and mansion. But after a while, you get the sense, this is a rotating villain performance. That if it wasn't cinema or mansion, they'd come up with somebody else. It would be the parliamentarian. It would be the congressional budget office. And then you go back in time, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, a 10,000 faces, right? It's 10,000 faces of a villain. If it wasn't Zell Miller, it was Joe Lieberman, right? You could just keep going, it was Ben Nelson. You keep going back in time. That why is it always that there's only, you know, one or two, supposedly one or two of these people who stand in the way of real progress. And then you start getting the feeling it's actually not one or two people. This is actually the
0: performance that they're selling and that this is actually the outcome that they want. And that's, you know, if they actually cared about this, if they were so perturbed that these people were standing in the way of their agenda and in the way of progress, they would do something about it. And the, the mechanism that they have would be supporting primary opponents, people who actually will, uh, Which FDR did. Yeah, and they won't. And we know that they won't. We know they they won't at the highest level because Dem leadership is working hand-in-hand with that Team Blue Pack. I mean, Josh Gottheimer and Akeem Jeffries. Josh Gottheimer is one of the people standing in the way and has been obstructing progress the entire time. And he is working with Akeem Jeffries and I think Terry Sewell to protect incumbent Democrats from... Justice Democrats. And... If they actually cared about it. And Henry Cuellar got a last minute boost over Jessica Cisneros from Pelosi. She flew down there to fundraise for him, to campaign for him in the waning days of a tight race to get him over the edge. And then he is another one who's been dragging his feet the entire time. That is the mechanism that they could use to get these people out of the way. And they won't do it. And they will not support progressive primary opponents.
1: No, there is no consequence for the corporate members of the Democratic Party who are killing the promised public agenda of the democratic party Uh, it is it is i think that is another tell that three democrats as an example three democrats from safe districts uh, killed in the commerce committee the drug pricing measure the thing the measure that the party has been promising for 15 years to allow medicare to negotiate lower prices they were not taken off the committee they have faced no consequences at all uh fun little Fun slash horrible little asterisk to that. One of the Democrats who was responsible, one of those three who who voted to kill their own party's initiative, was put on that committee uh, above AOC. Yeah, there was a Kathleen battle Rice. for that slot on the Commerce Committee, <laughs> and Kathleen Rice, the Democratic leadership, chose Kathleen Rice of New York over AOC, and Kathleen Rice returned the favor by killing the party's own promised bill to let Medicare negotiate lower prices for medicine like so not only were there are no consequences but there's actually a preservation of a preference for the members of Congress in the Democratic Party who do this which again you come you'd be kind of dishonest with yourself if you aren't at least wondering is the fix in is this all design is this is this all theater am i am i being am i being treated as a mark am i being treated to a ruse where they already know what they want to do these fights are performative and they're not real
2: well that's i think that's what it comes down to as well as that it's the main conversation we've been having over the last year um is about the very stuff we talked about especially at the beginning about whether the Biden administration had learned the lessons of what happened in uh you know 2010 uh, 2012 2014 um and I did get the sense that there like there are some people, at least within the administration, within the Democratic Party, who do grasp this basic concept that we need to deliver on something in order to not get our asses kicked. Uh, so I thought maybe for that reason, like maybe like like I was saying last week, um just basically out of out of a totally like cynical sense of self preservation, they would do Well they, do they seem to things. get it at the beginning. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was wondering. I almost thought for a minute, like maybe they have learned these things, no, the not fir- that they've the all first, become the, the rescues overnight or anything. Yeah, the COVID
1: rescue yeah. bill, I thought, okay, at least they figured out, you know, they got rid of the minimum wage. That was pathetic. They did all, you know, they had some capitulations, but at least they were like, listen, we got to cut a check. We're going to cut a big check to help lots of people directly. They did the child tax credit. It was very successful. And by the way, it was extremely popular. There was a stat I saw that we referenced in one of our op-eds about Meltdown, our, our podcast. I, we, we, it was the stat was basically uh, that the voter, voters who said they had voted for Trump, the subset of voters who had received the child tax credit had much higher, significantly higher favorability ratings for Biden, even though they were Trump voters, than those Trump voters who had not gotten the child tax credit, which is kind of proves the point. If you deliver real, simple material gains for people, guess what? They're more likely to like you as a politician, right? Huh. Like it's wow. just kind of a, a, a very <laughs> basic point.
2: <laughs> oh boy, um, Jordan, do, you have, do we have anything else? No, Are we all sufficiently we actually, yeah. uh, beaten down by the yeah relentless yeah. nature of the.
1: That's why. That's why I chose to drink a beer during this.
2: <laughs> so it was a good call. Yeah. I'm regretting my decision to not not drink a beer. Actually, <laughs> um, well, David, we really appreciate you taking the time um, to come on and talk to us. I, I've, I guess like that, that's the only takeaway is that it seems like from the from the result that happened the other day, and from the what's looking like the immediate future of of whatever whatever possible ambitious stuff that was in this bill getting completely erased. That it seems extremely painful to admit this, but it seems like history is kind of about to repeat itself. Uh, it is extremely. Uh, depressing and frustrating to see this kind of happen in slow motion like this. But, um, you know, I, we really appreciate the work you do on the Daily Poster bring this stuff down. Of course, the work you did in the Bernie Sanders campaign, trying to avoid this exact situation, um, which unfortunately, you know, didn't go the way anyone that uh, and the way that anyone wanted. But, you know, we appreciate the work that you do. We're happy you're able to come on Thank and talk you. to you. And us I, I appreciate I really
1: appreciate the work that you both do. And I really I, I look, there's not a lot of people out there who are willing every day to try to give voice to what I think is honestly empirical reality. I mean, the things that we've talked about uh, today, these are kind of not debatable things. They're just facts. And the entire corporate media system is designed to obscure these facts, pretend they're not facts, uh, distract attention from these facts, but they are facts. And it's not easy to wake up every day trying to simply uh, spotlight these facts, uh, boost these facts, give voice to these facts. There's not a lot of people doing it. So I want to just say, I really appreciate the work that both of you do to do that because it is, it is just so important. It is really, as, as dark as this conversation has been, ultimately what's going to get us <laughs> out of this, if we ever get out of it, it is going to be enough people being willing to speak truth uh, to power, uh, being willing to actually give voice to these facts and to willing, willing to actually act on them. So thank you for your work.
0: Thanks, David. Uh, We did want to plug it again, and we're going to put it in the show notes. Uh, Meltdown available on Audible. I've listened to it. It's awesome. People got to check it out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, .substack theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at insurgentspod. Tweet at us, harass canon in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening.